Good morning, church. I have no better news for you this morning than that. What a glorious truth. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is far more than even that. Amen. Well, if you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Nehemiah. As Daniel mentioned in his pastoral prayer this morning, we're beginning Nehemiah today, chapter 1. Though, as I've mentioned in weeks past, Nehemiah is, in some ways, a continuation of the book of Ezra. It was originally considered the same book or text in the Jewish canon. Today we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read to you this morning from the Legacy Standard Bible. I'd ask you to follow along with me. We're going to look at all of chapter 1. 11 verses, and remember as I read that these are the words of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, that I was in Susa, the capital. And Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and remained from the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who remain from the captivity are in great calamity and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now it happened when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, I said, I beseech you, O Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and fearsome God, who keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your slave, which I am praying before you today, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your slaves, Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have worked in utter destruction against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been banished were at the ends of the sky, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your slaves and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your slave and the prayer of your slaves who you delight to fear your name and make your slave successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And thus far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. 
Father, as we do each week, we admit to you that apart from a work of your spirit, we are unable to hear this word rightly. I am unable to preach it rightly. Your people are unable to take it in and digest it as nourishment for their souls rightly without the Holy Spirit. So we ask that he would move among us freely now, helping us to see the word of God rightly and understand it and apply it to our lives so that we might become like the word of God, Jesus Christ himself. It is in his name that we ask this prayer. Amen. The following that I'm about to read is an excerpt from Dr. Ben Merkel's biography of Alfred the Great. It's titled, The White Horse King. It is a somewhat lengthy quote, but it's worth our time this morning. As he returned to his men, Alfred was faced with a difficult task. He was barely 22 years old and had only experienced his first combat four days earlier. An experience that had not gone well for him or for his troops. After he had returned to his men, he wasted little time before informing them of the task at hand. He charged them to acquit themselves like men, to be worthy of the king that they served, to remember their God, and to trust in God's strength and mercy. He led his soldiers, marching silently, fighting back the uneasiness in the stomach and the trembling in the hand, through the frosted woods that cluttered the base of Ashdown. After a short march, they spilled out of the woods and onto the rising slope of the battleground, into the full view of the Viking throng. Upon seeing the arrival of the men of Wessex, the Vikings erupted into a barrage of derisive howls and jeers. But far more dismaying to Alfred than the taunting force on the hillside ahead was the absence on either flank of his brother and the second half of the Wessex army. The plan had been for both Alfred and Ethelred to immediately muster their forces and march to face the Danes. But Ethelred was nowhere in sight. Alfred would later learn that after the two had made their battle plans and separated... Ethelred had returned to his tent and summoned his priest in order that he might hear Mass before facing that morning's combat. The king was late for battle because, as the historian would later explain, he was lingering long in his prayers. Well, if you're like me, you've probably felt similarly to Alfred the last month or so, maybe the last six months, 12 months, we made it through 2022. We fought sins and fears and work and finances and sicknesses galore. We fought the ungodly in our community and online. St. Boniface Academy has been making quite a stir on the I Love Clinton Facebook page over the last week and a half. We've been in the fight week after week. After week, a fight of some sort. But there's hope 
there has to be hope. That 2023 is going to be, it has got to be better than 2022. And yet here we are, well into January, and many of you still on what feels like the losing side of your battle. I just don't get it. There were supposed to be reinforcements. Things were supposed to go the other way. We've been seeking help. Where is it? When you feel like the only thing that you're winning at is losing, the decisive moment comes in how you respond to each new assault that God sends. How do you respond when what follows bad news is more bad news? When, like Job, one awful thing happens, and then someone comes in to tell you about another, and another, and another. What you're going to see in Nehemiah today, and in the coming weeks, this message theme of responding to conflict is kind of an overarching theme through the book of Nehemiah. You're going to see a man who doesn't react, but he responds. He knows how to build and fight and pursue his objective until he sees it finished. Even if the opposition just keeps coming wave after wave. And he points us to the greater leader in Jesus Christ who set his face like flint to the objective to save each of our souls, overcoming the greatest obstacles, fighting the dragon until it was dead, and claiming his girl. Well, let's look a little bit at Nehemiah. I want to talk about some of the historical setting so you kind of know where we are as we transition from Ezra into this text. The writer of Nehemiah, of course it's Nehemiah himself, his own words. You see that right there in verse 1. But he could have had Ezra as his scribe or secretary write the book for him. That's perhaps why they were originally considered to be one book. If we assume that he's speaking of the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes I, that's what most consider to be the case, the date for this writing would be November to early mid-December 445 B.C. And that coincides perfectly with the historical situation that Artaxerxes was dealing with around this time. His brother, Histaspes, had revolted against him at the very beginning of his reign, turmoil already, in his kingdom. He had satraps, territorial governors, regularly trying to usurp him. In 460 BC, Egypt, which was at that time a province of Persia, was in turmoil because of a nationalistic revolt against the king, and that had broken out there and was somewhat out of control. Judea, by the way, is a neighboring province of Egypt, and therefore it had strategic value to the king to make sure that he could maintain dominance over that Palestinian trade route towards Egypt. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar's vision recorded in Daniel chapter 2 predicted, the worldwide empires were getting more and more unstable as you work your way down that vision and that statue. It's in this historical context that Nehemiah begins his journey. Let's look at our author. Nehemiah means, this is one of the most fascinating things that I learned this week. 
Nehemiah means comforted of Jehovah. Or the Lord comforts. Consider the kindness of the Lord that for the next several months, we will be in a book loaded with conflict. And the title of the book is The Lord Comforts. I asked the Lord that I might grow. You sure? Here it comes. But the Lord comforts, beloved. The book is certainly his own words, as I mentioned, though Ezra was likely his scribe. And also, to speak of those two men, Ezra and Nehemiah are two very different people. I've spoken to this a little in weeks past. But get ready for a change of textual pace, church. Think in terms of typology. Ezra represents to us a type of priest. Of course, he was a priest. Gentle, healing, interceding, a shepherd of his people. No, that doesn't mean that he's soft. It takes guts to confront all the sins of your brothers and sisters in a public square when the whole congregation is assembled together in the pouring rain. It takes discipline to weep and fast for other people's sins and sins that you yourself are actually truly grieved over that they are sinning. It takes some intestinal fortitude to lead several thousand over vast expanses of desert with bus loads, literally, size-wise, of treasure at risk every moment from hunger, thirst, mutiny, robbery, also denying the privilege of the royal escort you were entitled to, even though could have had it. He said no. Ezra had what we call gravitas. He had that weightiness, that stature that people looked to, that looked up to. He was just the kind of man that didn't need to say much to get the job done. The quality of his character, his commitment to read, live, and teach the Torah, and his zeal for the Lord's house were rewarded with that favor of God that allowed him to be tremendously influential. He commanded respect without needing to give commands. Now, Nehemiah, thinking again in terms of typology, is a type of king. So you've got your priest in Ezra. Now you've got your king in Nehemiah. He eventually does become the governor over Jerusalem. We'll see that later in the book. He is authoritative, commanding, bold and brave, not afraid to mete out punishment to wrongdoers and give praise to those who walk in obedience. He is not the quiet sort, not reserved, not Mr. Gentle. He's not concerned with people's felt needs. Ezra pulls out his own beard. Nehemiah pulls out other men's beards. And this book has that kind of flavor to it. You'll see as we go through this. It's all written in the first person except for a portion of the later chapters. Around chapter 8, it swaps to third person. It's all written in that kind of direct, imminent context of what's going on in his life. Nehemiah is the kind of man who would say, God gave me a job to do, and I don't care what you throw at me, I will see his job done. So even though we're looking largely at a prayer this morning, I want to start this morning's text and this reading through the book of Nehemiah together by asking you to think of the text in terms of how we respond to successive waves of trials. Think that overarching theme of responding to those difficult trials of life. 
you might summarize one of the larger lessons from Nehemiah as how ought the godly take a punch? How ought the godly take a punch? Now along those lines, I've got a brief point of application for our men this morning. A little hat tip here this morning to uh, Jackie Hill Perry, sort of this week repenting about her original denial that the Enneagram personality test had demonic origins. She actually came out and repented of that. There's a number of other teachings she should also repent of, but maybe those are to come. Men at Christ the King, are you more of an Ezra or are you more of a Nehemiah? Specifically, are you more of that king personality or are you more of that priestly personality? Both are good. Both can be full of zeal for the Lord, though they express it in different ways. For those of you who are strong-willed and commanding like Nehemiah, watch out that your fervency doesn't lead to sinning and anger against your family. Take a lesson from the book that we just came out of, from Ezra. This man, if you have to raise your voice or lose your cool or let your blood pressure go up in response to a parenting or spousal situation, you have already lost. You're already on the losing side. You're no longer acting like a king, but a slave master. Ezra didn't have to do any of those things. The quality of his character, the favor of God on him, was more than enough to command respect from those around him. For those of you who have a shepherd's heart and a desire for the wounded to be healed, that more nurturing, caring side, as Ezra did. No, that's not a, this equals softness. Caring, nurturing in a man does not equal effeminacy. Not necessarily. It can be a gift to your family and church. But those of you who lean that direction, learn a lesson from Nehemiah. God is going to bring moments into your life where you will have to respond and act, and act the part of a man. Those of you who were at the library board meeting saw the way it, a number of our men, like John too, got up and spoke boldly and bravely before those unbelievers. And you think, that could never be me. I think up in New York, they only breed Nehemiahs, right, John? But you, sir, even though you might identify more with Ezra, are a man. And God has also wired you for kingship in his kingdom, to build and to fight. And as a type of king, Nehemiah wasn't afraid to go to war against the wolves, and neither should you. Now, setting those two personalities aside, your Ezra's, your Nehemiah's, the men might say, I fit more or less in one of those two categories. My greatest concern for our men this morning is for those of you who respond to the challenges that God sends wave after wave after wave into your life by doing nothing. You don't take the role of a priest or of a king in your home. You are selfish, self-serving, braggadocious in front of the men here at church while at home your wife and your children languish. Daddy feeds himself on the nicest portions of food and drink, 
kicking his feet up when he gets home or running away to the shop to clean his guns without offering to help with the leadership or service of the household. Drilling away hours each evening on sports and games and events with other men, even here at our church. You pretend to everyone here that your marriage is okay. It's fine. We're fine. After all, my wife is too emotional to understand that we're really in a good place. There's nothing for anyone at church to be concerned about. So don't talk to us about our relationship. Let me tell you something, sir. You who claim Christ by a profession of faith, but are living completely contrary to that profession. Where is the fruit of righteousness shining in your home? Where is the evidence of God's gift of faith in your life right now? Working itself out in love with those for whom you are most directly responsible. Where is the proof of your manhood, which, though typically produced in your reproductive organs, is strangely absent from your outward walk with God and those under your own roof? You can put a three-shot group inside the nine circle like nobody's business, but you'd stand before the Lord, the bar of God one day, and Jesus, as we heard this morning, In the text, in Matthew 25, say, I never knew you. What if you spent your whole life chasing manhood as the world defines it, and you got to heaven one day and Christ were to call you a coward and condemn you by that word because you didn't have the guts to stand up against your own selfishness for the sake of those inside your home. Hear me, sir. Those who cause even one Little child to stumble from seeing the glory of Jesus will not enter into his glory apart from repentance and forgiveness. Regardless of whether you're Ezra or Nehemiah, if you show up to the battlefield each day and you see your own sin arrayed against your marriage and you abdicate your role as king priest over your home, you're asking me to stand up here and tell you that there is hope for you in heaven one day? If you continue down that road of unrepentance, as Christ's minister, I cannot do that. There is no hope for you unless you repent and turn in faith and trust in Christ for your salvation. Jesus said you'd be a happier man if you had a millstone tied around your neck with lungs full of salt water at the bottom of the ocean. Sir, you need to repent and you need to find men in this church who will help you fight your sin, to whom you can confess what's really going on in your home and who will keep you accountable and help you kill it. Well, let's get into this morning's text. I want to break this chapter up into two brief sections this morning. We're going to begin with the first four verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The text opens in early winter at the Persian winter palace, Susa. It's today located in Iran, just north of the Persian Gulf. Nehemiah has been serving King Artaxerxes' cupbearer, but he has also been waiting expectantly on some news. What happened to those first two waves of exiles that returned from the captivity? The text says those that escaped, those that got away from their captivity. It's been about 13 years since Ezra and his team left from the capital and made their way back to Jerusalem. What are the state of things today? 
What's going on in Jerusalem? Well, in verse 2, Brother Hanani, along with some other Jews, pays a visit to the royal city. Now, it's most likely that Hanani is Nehemiah's biological brother. The text itself lends towards that. He says, my brother Hananiah and some other Jews. He doesn't say, and my brothers, the Jews. He distinguishes between the two. But whichever it is, whether Hananiah was his biological brother or just a brother in the Jewish family, he's got some anticipated tidings. I ask you this morning, do you remember a time before there was instant messaging? I am old enough to remember a time before we had text messages. Or can you remember a time before cell phones? Some of you might even remember the giant Zach Morris cell phone from Saved by the... Okay, I know who you are. All right. 90s kids. Yes. Some of you can remember what it was like to leave your home in a car, having told your parents what time you would be home, having no cell phone to connect with them throughout the evening, and when you got home, mom or dad, or depending on your parents' temperaments or your own reliability... Both mom and dad were sitting there waiting for you, and they wanted the story. So what'd you do this evening? How did it go? And how come you're not back when you said you'd rendezvous with us? Now, they stayed up late. Why? Because they want to hear the story. We are a people written into a story. We're a people currently acting out a story. And we will, this generation, will one day be read as part of the larger story of redemption. We can't help but want the story. And this wasn't a few hours on a summer evening that passed by, Nehemiah waiting for an update or some news. He could have potentially gone 13 years, perhaps more, with no update on how things are going in Jerusalem. From those that he could trust, his brothers, the Jews. He's been waiting on news and unfortunately the news is not good. In addition to the wall of Jerusalem being broken down and its gates burned with fire, Hananiah describes the exile situation as great calamity and reproach. That's the LSB. Great affliction, the KJV says. And the Young's literal translation chooses great evil. This is just a summary of their conversation. You can imagine them talking more in detail about what was going on, but these were what you might call the high points. So when did this happen? When were the walls broken down? When were the gates burned by fire? When was this affliction and this reproach? In 1 Kings 25, we see the initial destruction of Jerusalem, which took place about 140 years prior in 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar had quite a bit of the city of Jerusalem, including the walls, broken and burned at that time. Although I don't think that's actually what they're referring to in this instance. You may remember back in Ezra chapter 4 that Rehum and Shimshai wrote a letter to Artaxerxes in which they informed him that the exiles were completing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, I think it's 
the progress that they were reporting at that time to Artaxerxes, that somewhere in this kind of time period in between these writings, that's what got destroyed. And Nehemiah is rightly disappointed. The legacy reads, Now it happened that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He's more than disappointed. He's deeply grieved and despondent. Now, here's where we need to stop for just a minute and look at the merit of the man coming out of him. His response to adversity. He mourns, he fasts, he prays. And, as you saw with Ezra, he's doing this for other people's problems. He's doing this on behalf of others. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, which also likely makes him a close advisor and counselor to the king, somebody that the king could trust even more than his satraps who were constantly trying to usurp him. Nehemiah is not living the low life at this point. What happened in Jerusalem is hundreds of miles away and isn't affecting his ability to wine and dine daily or clothe himself like a king or sleep like a king. But when he hears about the plight of God's people, all of that comes to a stop. Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see it here even in a way in this Old Testament saint, Nehemiah. Here's a man who is filled with the love of God for the people of God. And you know he does this because he loves God. Similar to Job, we've been in Job in our church-wide reading plan, chronologically going through the Bible. He acted similarly in his hour of distress. Job arose tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So what do you see? You see faith in God. You see love of neighbor. In the middle of a maelstrom of trial. So you might be thinking, Okay, I'm out there. I'm in the middle of the storm. But I don't respond that way. I haven't been responding that way. I don't know how to get to that place. So Chris, how do I get there? What's the secret? When we left the Clinton Library board meeting on Thursday night, the thing that stuck out to me the most about that meeting was how much work lay ahead of us here in Clinton, Tennessee. The board currently is unwavering that the godless and despicable child grooming books that are prominently displayed for our city's little ones are not going to get taken down. They are at least going to wait on their lawyer to tell them if legally they can leave these books up, though they've already had them up prior. They have the monopoly, and it's because they put in the time, they played the long game, and they grinded it out. Yes, we, as Christendom, in America and right here in Anderson County, are way behind. But we can beat them at this game. Doug Wilson says, since the Christian lives in the light of eternity, he can afford to be patient. That's a good word. 
Thus says Yahweh, the Lord says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 6, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk, not run, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. In the years to come, Christ the King will need to focus on two important things. First, we're going to have to commit to the long game. We're here for the long haul. This isn't going to be an overnight fix. Yes, the Lord could do a work and the whole library board repent and get rid of all the nasty books in the library. Not just the child grooming ones, but the other over-sexualized and drug-encouraging ones. All the bad literature. But because we know how God typically acts, it's likely that we will be playing the long game. And in addition to playing the long game, we need to get on and stay on what the Lord told Jeremiah here are the ancient paths. What are those? They're the simple means of grace for every Christian to grow in Christ's likeness. Read your Bible, pray, come to church each week, fellowship with the saints. It's the Jordan Peterson version of Christianity. Make your bed, brush your teeth, act like a homo sapien, that kind of thing. It's basic but consistent Christianity that pays the dividends over time. Get up every day. Read your Bible for 15 minutes. And then pray for 15 minutes. And then go live like what you read that morning is true in the world. And repeat that until you die. Those are the ancient paths. Get on them. Walk. Commit to the long game. Seeking Christ day after day along these old roads, remaining undeterred when your quiet time doesn't quite feel Pinterest worthy. Instagram post. I got to say something about this to everybody. Had a massive experience this morning. No, it's not typically like that. But every day I get up and I pursue the Lord because he promised me that I'd find him here. This was Nehemiah's secret, beloved. This is how he got to this place. You're going to see this in his prayer here in just a minute. His life in a Persian palace with all its accompanying luxuries. But Nehemiah has spent all that time that he's been in exile pursuing Yahweh in his word. There's no dramatic encounters with angels for Nehemiah. There's no getting caught up to the third heaven. No tongue speaking or miracles in his entire life. He's just a faithful guy who, like Ezra, didn't waste his time. And that's how and why he responds the way that he does. Beloved, your pursuit of Christ each day doesn't have to be worthy of that internet post. According to Jesus' instructions about getting alone with the Father in secret, I can't think of a reason why you would broadcast your quiet time to the world. Find a way to get up each day and pursue Christ. 15 minutes of reading, more if you like. 15 minutes of prayer, again, more if you like. And just do that day after day. Find a way each day to get up and pursue the Lord. Because no matter how much time the enemy has invested, there's one thing the library board doesn't have going for them. They are not connected to the vine. 
They're not. So that means that they are ultimately a fruitless endeavor. They cannot produce anything that blesses the world. They can only tear down. They can only destroy. They can only break the world in pieces. But your king and mine, your high priest and mine, died and he is now alive forevermore. And he cannot die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He is in the business of rewarding those who diligently seek him along the ancient roads. And because he lives forever, he will always be there to pour out those blessings for us. He will always be there to intercede for us when we fall. He will always be there for us. And one day he will say to each of us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, the prayer of Nehemiah in verses 5 through 11 gives us a good idea of the mindset that Nehemiah had during the days of fasting and after hearing this news. In verses 5 through 7, he opens with a salutation to the Lord followed by a confession. He uses the divine name Yahweh, not the generic Elohim of heaven, common to the Middle East in those days. He calls Yahweh both a great and fearsome, literally translated terrible, God. Even that which frightens us about God is a perfection for which he must be adored. He appeals for the ear of God who keeps his covenants. What follows are a number of thoughts taken from Deuteronomy. The parts here about the covenant taken from 5 verse 10 and chapter 7 verse 9. Nehemiah, like Ezra, numbers himself among the transgressors, but whereas Ezra was not guilty of the sin which he confessed for the people, Nehemiah is. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. His admission in verse 7 of the breach of Torah is a devastating one. That might not catch us here as individualized Americans who live our lives apart from groups. But the breaking of the law means a broken covenant as well. And those who break the covenant in the Old Testament were not entitled to the covenant love of God. In verses 8 through 10, Nehemiah appeals to promises in the Torah of God's mercy towards Repenters. This section is taken chiefly from Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4. You see how much Bible he knows. He's been spending his time in the Word of God. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4 reads, So it will be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you cause these things to return to your heart in all the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you, And you return to Yahweh your God and listen to His voice with all your heart and soul according to all that I am commanding you today, you and your sons. Then Yahweh your God will return you from captivity and return His compassion on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If those of you who are banished are at the ends of the sky, exact same wording that Nehemiah uses here, From there, Yahweh your God will gather you. And from there, he will take you back. Now, that taking back language, pair that with what you see in the legacy, which I think does a good job of translating 
what the ESV chooses to be servant language. It was even in our New Testament passages today. He gave to his servants talents. The Greek term there is literally slaves. He gave to his slaves talents. You see it here in Nehemiah in the legacy this morning. That's one of the reasons that I read that over you this morning. I will take you back. I'm taking my slaves back. These are my people. They belong to me. You have slaves, Israel, who are redeemed slaves, God's redeemed slaves. And Nehemiah gets it, even if your English translation doesn't. But... The redemption language. Notice this. This word for redemption is the same language that's used when the firstborn had to be redeemed by the blood of a lamb. So you've got slaves, God's slaves, God's people, but they're redeemed as sons. They're redeemed as his lambs, as his children. Verse 11 concludes with a prayer and a final request. That God give Nehemiah favor as he goes before the king. Now Daniel's going to deal with this more next week. Dr. Haas is going to preach for us next week going through the first bit of chapter 2. But there is a four month period of time from when Nehemiah receives this news and hears about Jerusalem's condition to when he actually goes and addresses the king. During that time... It's likely that he's remained steadfast in a season of fasting and prayer and bringing his petitions before the Lord. Notice also how he addresses the king. He calls him this man. Give me favor, Lord, when I go before this man. It's not that he lacked respect for Artaxerxes. You'll hear his language be very deferential to the government authority next week when he's speaking in his presence. But here Nehemiah is talking to the king of kings. Everybody else is just a dude. They put on their britches the same way he does. There's just no comparison. Now I want you to consider three things that we see in this prayer, beloved. I want you to consider for us in the new covenant, the the unbreakable covenant love of our God. Nehemiah was rightly concerned with the sin of the nation. He knew his Old Testament well. And that God's covenant love would not abide with those in rebellion against him. But when God endeavored in Christ to make the new covenant, an everlasting covenant it's called by the prophets, he inaugurated it with the blood of a perfect paschal lamb who consequently also suffered the curse for every one of our acts of unfaithfulness inside that covenant. Those of us sinning in the covenant still cannot break the covenant because of the power of Christ's blood on us. There's no double jeopardy. Augustus Toplady, a line from a song that we're all familiar with. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Because Christ, beloved, because of Jesus, you are entitled to the unbreakable covenant love of the Father. Consider this second point. Consider the gift of your slavery to Christ. You have all this slave language here in Nehemiah's prayer. And we, 
in America today try and avoid all that slave language. The, the translators say, in most of the modern translations, they take the word slave out because of our perceptions of the word slave because of the antebellum slave trade. They, they remove the biblical language because of what we might think of it based on a more modern interpretation. Now, I understand why they're doing that, and I strongly disagree with it. I want the Bible to say what it says, and I don't want to act like we're apologizing for it. We prefer to focus, even us here at Christ the King, thinking of the word slave. Uh, let's, let's talk about that redemption word. Didn't you say that had something to do with the lamb being sacrificed? That gets us to the gospel. Let's talk about that. Beloved, Paul says to us that you were redeemed from your slavery and sin to become a slave of Christ. The New Testament is not afraid of this language. And it is glorious. Likewise, he who was called while free, that's every one of us, is a slave of Christ. Is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. You have been purchased. Regardless of what images come into your mind when you hear the word slavery, consider this. Slaves don't get to go anywhere they want to. They don't get to act according to their own wills. They don't get to tell their owners what to do. They don't get to choose where to live or what to eat or what to drink. They are in complete subjection to their master. And there is something truly very beautiful about relating to Christ in that way. You sing the glory of it all the time. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness... Like a fetter, that's a shackle. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Chain it up to you. Otherwise, it's going to grow feet and run away like it always does. Take my heart and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. On Thursday night, as I mentioned, a number of men spoke. Jeremy Mefford pointed out to the board that though many of the people who had spoken in favor of keeping these perverted children's books were speaking about freedom as Americans, what they're really asking for was anarchy. They weren't talking about the true biblical definition of freedom. They're talking about anarchy. They're talking about no rule but their own. Nobody tells me what to do. I make all my own choices. Now I ask you, church, considering the glory of your slavery to Christ, which of the two options do you prefer? Anarchy masquerading as freedom in Christ, which is why we get a lot of the silly nonsense in the church we have today. Because I, I believe this Bible, though I've never really read it. And I don't know what it says, and I just kind of do what feels right. Because we're free in Christ. I heard that one time. Or would you prefer total subjection to a benevolent master who treasures you as his child? Now finally, as we close, consider whether your response to opposition is grounded, as Nehemiah's was, in the fear of Almighty God. In many ways, Nehemiah was as close to the king as you could get. But in this crisis moment, he shows that in his mind... The king is just a man. He's nothing to write home about. In his moment of crisis, 
continual crisis, sustained crisis, chronic trouble, enduring hardships. Nehemiah runs right to the throne of God, the God of the universe, against whom no king or ruler is able to stand. Wavering Christian, we come by the blood, the blood of that Passover lamb that was once for all shed for us. We drink daily from the fountain of remembrance to train our forgetful minds of the truth that will sustain us and cause us to stand in our days of trouble. Because, as I said earlier, Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. He is the King. He will have us and this world as His own forever in the end. So how did Alfred the Great respond when he emerged from the forest? He was expecting to see his brother and his army there. But instead, he was laughed at by the hordes of Vikings arrayed against him. What did he do? He didn't react rashly. He didn't abdicate. He put his military upbringing from his childhood and the principles of his faith into practice in that moment. He formed his men into a shield wall which the Vikings tried unsuccessfully for some time to break through, but they were unable. They eventually became frightened of the Anglo-Saxons and retreated. Those that didn't were rounded up, killed, or caught. Dr. Ben Merkel records that at just that moment, Athelred, his brother, had just finished saying his prayers. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. 1 Peter 5 verse 10. God is up to something, beloved. In the middle of our sustained trials, he is set like flint to victory. He is looking for men and women who are not afraid of the days ahead who are interested in playing the long game, who unashamedly walk day after day, regardless of their feelings, the ancient paths, who can get bad news again and again, pray and fast, and get back to work. Because that's what faithful slaves do. Father, we thank you for your word. Every week, it is your word that enlightens and encourages us. It is your word that breathes life into our lives. We pray that you would comfort those who are struggling in trial right now. Successive wave again after again after again of trial. Lord, would you please strengthen and encourage those who are suffering now. Would you be with those who are wandering from you who are rebelling against their slavery in Christ, who are abdicating their role as king priests, who are not shepherding their homes, would you convict them deeply that they need their brother's help here and that they need repentance and faith in Jesus and to be set right? Would you be with us in the days ahead as the battle rages around us and we forge ahead, walking one step at a time? Light the path. Illuminate the way. Let the darkness become light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.